0: You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 is our text for today. But before we jump into Romans, Mike kind of gave you a little heads up of what today is. Many of you probably know what this is to my right and to your maybe left as you're looking to me. Uh, This is an Advent wreath. Uh, On an Advent wreath, you're typically going to find five candles. Four candles surrounding, making a circle or maybe a square depending on how you you stage it. And then one candle in the middle. Uh, And this day... This is the fourth Sunday out from Christmas Day, and it's the start of Advent. And Advent means waiting, or probably better known, waiting on a notable person to arrive. And we know who that person is for us. That's the person in the work of Jesus Christ. But as we look to this, every week you're going to see this wreath in the middle of or or in the center of our stage. And, And maybe in your homes you have Advent candles, Advent wreaths as well. Here's the purpose behind them. That when you walk in from the chaos and the hustle and the bustle of this season, you look at something that is different. You look at something that is by each week gaining brightness and you are reminded that there's something better coming than the here and now. And so for us, we, we need to remember that not just in our one-hour church service on Sunday, but in our homes as well, in our lives as well, just to remember that we aren't living for right here and right now. We're living for the life and the kingdom to come. And so that is what this Advent season is all about. You are going to see different themes as we journey towards Christmas Day. Today's theme is hope. Next week is peace. The next week after that is joy. And then the final one leading up to Christmas Day is love. And then on Christmas Eve, we pray that you, your family, and all of your friends are going to join us for our Christmas Eve services that day. And it will be in that moment that we light the center candle, which is the Christ candle. And so for that, we give thanks to the Lord this morning, that we are in the right now, but we are waiting on the not yet. We are waiting on what is to come. We are waiting on the fulfillment of all the promises of Christ in his second coming. And that day will be a day that we give great honor and praise to our King who comes again. So with that being said, we get ready to jump into Romans chapter 4. And we pray that you find great hope in this passage. Now, I want to be clear. I told you last week and and I I didn't take this phrase lightly. But if we rightly understand this book and we rightly apply this book, this, this Romans, to our life, it will absolutely change everything, particularly the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. These are the chapters in this particular book that, that honestly change history for all of us in this room. You say, well, Josh, that's a pretty big statement. What do you mean? Well, for number one, we are worshiping in a Protestant church. The Protestant Reformation over 500 years ago is sparked by Martin Luther who reads this section of Scripture and God ignites his heart into into flame, this passion to know the word and apply the word and to know that God sent his son Christ to atone for all of our sins, that he is the mediator. He's the one that goes before God on our behalf. He is, and we, we learned it two weeks ago, the propitiation. He's the one that goes and atones for our, our sin, and it's in that atonement that we are expiated, that, that our sin is forgiven and forgotten as far as the east is from the west. And then last week, the Apostle Paul, in his writing to the church at Rome, takes us on a little bit of a journey. Kind of, if you were, to, to go back in time, way, way back in time, to about 2000 B.C. We pick up a man named Abraham. Abraham. And he's talking about Abraham because for the Jews that he's going to be speaking to in the Roman church, it's their pride and joy. They love Abraham. And they're trying to, they're trying to sort out how these Gentile believers need to adhere to the Jewish rule and the Jewish way for them to actually have a good and right religion. And so the Gentiles would say, no, we don't need that. We have Christ. And so Paul enters the scene, and he brings up this this guy named Abraham, and he says, hey, look, that guy who is the father of the Jewish faith, if you go back far enough, here's what you'll learn, that he's the father of us all. And he was made right before God. He was justified before God by grace through faith that will be the same way that the Apostle Paul teaches that salvation works in the New Testament as well. Now, as we look to this week, we are going to see hopefully something that brings great freedom in Christ. Joy in his fellowship and hope in his promises. Now, all that being said, we're ready to jump in. All right? But let's go back one verse and set the stage. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Let's read together. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So that goes back to the Jew and Gentile all falling under the umbrella of Father Abraham. And so just just a, a quick recap here. We're given an insider's look to Abraham's faith. He trusted everything Abraham trusted everything to the object of his faith. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen, the answer to this question I'm about to ask you is maybe the most important question that we need to know about Abraham, and it will be a very important question that we ask ourselves this morning. Here is the question. What was the object of Abraham's faith? Now, probably if you've been listening, you're going to be quick to say, well, of course it was God. Sure, it was. But remember, as we read in the New Testament, there were a lot of the Jewish believers who would say it was the law. It was the sign of covenant. It was the covenant itself. And all of those things are important. But long before the law, long before circumcision, even long before the covenant, God comes to Abraham and breathes life into him. So the object of his faith, what he trusted his life to, is nothing else but God. Verse 17 says it this way. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. All right? So Abraham's faith. All of it, completely focused on one thing, one person, and that person is God. Yes, Abraham believed in the promises of God, but much more importantly, he believed in God who made the promises. That's going to be an important distinction for us. All right, this is really huge. It may seem silly this morning to point out that Abraham's faith was placed solely on God. You may sit here and say, well, of course it was. What else would Abraham's faith be placed on Abraham focused on his God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Remember those two things, they're going to be important later. But I don't think it's so silly to point out that the object of Abraham's faith was solely God. I don't think it is silly to actually remind ourselves of that every week. Matter of fact, it was part of the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, whenever the, the, the Hebrew people would get together, they would, they would remember this in the morning and in the day and at night, when they got up, when they went out, when they came in, when they sat down, when they ate, when they went to sleep. They would be reminded of this. Why? Here's why I believe it's not silly for us to be reminded of this today and every day. It is not silly to point out that this is true because for whatever reason, we spend most of our time and energy focusing our faith on us. Strangely, and and I have some ideas and I'll share them with you in just a second. We see the heroes of our faith from the scriptures. They put their focus and trust in God and for whatever reason, we focus more on us than we do God. Now, it will be things about God in our life We will use terminology that makes us think that it's centered around God, but at the very center of it is us. Josh, what are you saying? Abraham was not justified. He was not saved because of the strength of his faith. Listen to me. Abraham was justified and saved because of the strength of the object of his faith. Let that sink in. Abraham was not justified before God because he believed enough. He was justified before God is because he believed in God. God saved Abraham. Abraham didn't save Abraham. Let me, let me say it this way. Abraham didn't save himself, He didn't do something to be saved. He didn't say something to be saved, and he didn't pay something to be saved. God did not say after all of this, yep, I got to save this guy now. He's done too much. God saved Abraham because God is gracious and he is good. Because he's God and he gives life to the dead. Because he's God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. The reason we need this distinction is the same reason this passage is going to be such good news for us today and every day. Because all too often we make our relationship with God about us and forget that it's all about Him. That's why we find ourselves spiraling, wondering, did we do enough to keep God happy? Did we say the prayer the right way for Him to hear us, to know us, and to save us? If you're in here today and you've repeated the sinner's prayer over one time, listen to me, over one time, and many of us, it's tens and twenties and hundreds of times because the thought is, I hope i say it right this time in hopes that he hears me. It's not about what you say or how you say it. It's about the God who saves you. That's the whole point that, that Paul is teaching here through the life of Abraham. God is good and gracious. That's why Abraham was made righteous. He didn't say the right words the right way for God in heaven to say, Psh, I wasn't going to save him, but he said it the right way. I got to get him now. Church, hopefully as we hear this today, there is going to be a great relief for us, many of us. There are going to be many of you in the room that say, Josh, I already knew this. Why are we going over it? This is elementary. This is the most elementary blocks of our faith. But for whatever reason, we forget them or we've missed them. All right, here we go. When we resolve in our heart and our mind that our faith is not about us, it will be in that moment and only in that moment when we can focus on whom our faith is truly about. And it is about God Almighty. The moment that we realize it's not about us is the moment that we're gonna realize it's about him. That's why Paul says it this way in the next verse, verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And he has been told, so shall your offspring be. All right, so even though there was no hope of having kids, so so going back to last week, uh, I'll try to catch you up. Abraham, Sarah, his wife are really old. They're getting older by the day. There's a promise that they're going to have a kid. They don't have an heir. And and God says, no, you're going to have a kid. And they're getting up in age, like, like late 90s, up in age. And God looks to them and says, next year, you're going to have a kid. For this, he hopes against hope. Even though there was no physical way of them having a kid in their own eyes. For he was too old. Sarah was too old. Their time of having kids had passed them by a long time ago. In the face of the impossible, Abraham believed what God said. Here's what he said. That you should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19 is fantastic. For me, it is my favorite verse in this entire chapter. Here's why. He did not weaken in faith... When he considered his own body. Which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Just the fact that this is written in the Bible. He did not weaken in faith. All right, So so does that mean he didn't look in the mirror and think. What is God thinking? God, you must have the wrong guy. Or if there's ever a moment that he looked over at Sarah. As beautiful as his bride is to him after all of those years, does he look at her and say, God, I don't, how? Of course he thought those things. Of course, those thoughts of we can't do this. I physically can't. She physically can. not We can't have this child that you've promised to us. We can't do it. Of course he thought those things because verse 19 tells us he thought those things. But here's where the encouragement comes. So wait. Abraham battled unbelief. But his faith didn't weaken? So you can have unbelief and your faith still be strong? How is that even possible? Remember that the faith that counted Abraham as righteous wasn't faith in his ability to believe. The faith that counted Abraham righteous was the faith in his God who made the original promise. I know that seems nuanced, but how many times have you been caught in the lie that you believe that your faith is dependent on you? How many times have we, have we become Im- Im- immense with guilt and shame because we've messed up yet again and we think, God, no way, you can still love me. It's in that moment that we understand that our faith is now centered on us and what we do instead of truthfully on who he is and what he's already done. Our faith is to be set on God and God alone. Our faith is to be set on Christ and Christ alone. Verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Yes, there was unbelief, but it didn't make him waver concerning the promise that God gave to him. He didn't wallow in his unbelief, but in his unbelief of his ability, of of, of Abraham's ability, He became strong in his faith, faith in God, in God's ability to keep his promise. I want you to get that, so let me say it a little more slowly this time. Abraham did not wallow in his unbelief, but in his unbelief that he had of his body, of his wife's body, of their age. It was in that frailty. And that brokenness, that he became strong in the promises of God. Because it was in that moment that he realized there is no way I can do this. And so if God, you're going to do it, you are going to be the one to do it. And at the end of the day, you're going to be the one who gets all the glory for it. And that process somehow brings God glory. I don't know about you, but this gives me so much hope. God uses the unbelief in me to grow my faith in him. How many of us in this room have battled with the unbelief in us, causing guilt and shame in us? And what this verse tells us is our unbelief in us should be the very thing that draws us to belief in him. And it's through that cycle that brings him glory. Listen to me, the enemy wants you to believe your life is about you. The gospel tells a better story. Your life, Christian, that is now bought with a price belongs to him. And all the failures and all the shortcomings, it belongs to Him. And what He is going to do, what the Father is going to do, is in all of our brokenness, show Himself complete. And it's in that completeness that we can come and find our soul's rest. Abraham doesn't get to the end of the day and think, yep, I can do this. His resolve is this alone. God, if we are going to have a kid, it will only be by your grace. If you are going to be made true to these promises, it won't be because of anything that I bring to the table. It will be by all you and your strength. If you need to hear it again, if if you need to feel better about what you're hearing, Paul gives, I think, the clearest definition of what biblical faith is this is verse 21? Here's what it says fully convinced that God is able to do what He had promised. You see, saving faith is being, being fully convinced that God was and is able to do what He has promised, saving faith is faith placed in God not faith placed in our abilities in keeping our side of the promises i know for so many this may seem like a tension that continues to grow week after week because what it sounds like what it what it may sound like to you is that you now have nothing to do that's not true but I'm telling you, you can't do anything to get saved. So, so the whole salvation moment, that justification moment, that has to happen by God's grace through faith. And it's in that moment that He breathes life into the dead body that is ours, and we now raise to walk in new life. And then we walk. For too often, too long, we start to believe that we need to do the walking before we're alive. How's that even possible? The reason this section of Romans is so powerful is because it changes the way that we think and it should change the way that we think. A lot of times the the passages that we have in Romans are picked out. You have maybe the eight Romans road passages. But I would encourage you that if you start from the beginning and go to the end, this book is absolutely gonna change you. It's gonna make you feel uncomfortable in all the greatest kind of ways. Especially where we live and how we live and we think it's a lot about us and what this, this book is going to tell us. It's told us in the first chapter 1, chapter 2, and half of chapter 3, you are more dead than you even thought. You got more carnal nature in you than you even thought possible. But God's got more goodness in him than there is sin in us. And it's in that goodness that God brings life into us. And then there is going to come a section in here that calls us to action. But when it comes to justification, when it comes to to salvation, when it comes to coming into the family of God, listen to me, it is by God's grace alone that that happens. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do all that he had promised. Saving faith is a faith placed in God, not in our own abilities. Verse 22. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. See, chapter 4 has been a great trip down memory lane so far. But why did Paul take them, and why does Paul take us to 2000 B.C.? Verse 23 and 24 tell the story. But the words, it was counted to him, applied to him. The words, this, this idea of justification were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So so we finally get the, the imagery very clearly that Paul is giving to us. The reason I'm going back in time to tell you about Abraham, the reason I'm going back to tell you about David, if you go back and read the first part of chapter four, is because you need to hear what saved them, what redeemed them. Because what got them is the same thing that gets us. It's the good and gracious God who's slow to anger and rich in mercy. We've made this parallel for the past two weeks, but Paul is spelling it out here. That the grace that saved Abraham through faith in God is the same faith that saves us through faith in God. Generally, there are two types of people, right? So I'm going to generalize us in this room. You may like that, you may not. Here we go. Those that hear a big picture idea and connect with it and you find joy from it. That's one group. Second group, there are those in the room that need more details. We hear from you when we do our podcast. When we talk about the general ideas, some of you are like, yes, I love it. Others are like, no, I need more. I don't know where you are this morning. I know who some of you are because I read your emails. But when you hear that Abraham was justified because of his faith in God, And we are justified in the same way by God's grace through faith. Some of you are completely satisfied with that statement. Matter of fact, you find great life in that statement. But some of you are not satisfied. Some of you need much more detail in what faith is. What what specifically should my faith be in? Got it. Paul has us covered. Look back halfway through verse 24. He gives us the answer. It will be counted to us. Who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right, so it will, be, it will be counted to us who believe. Here's here's the core belief. Here is when we say believe the gospel and be saved. This is what you are believing about the gospel. In Him, God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So you believe in God the Father who sent Jesus Christ the Son. What did Jesus Christ the Son do? The second thing, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. You believe in God the Father who sent Jesus Christ the Son who atoned for our sins. Now again, we can go back to the very part of uh, the first part of chapter 1 and we talk about what the gospel is. There is nothing more to the gospel than Jesus Christ and him crucified, but there is so much more in that gospel. So if we come here and we apply the gospel title here, would that cover it? Of course it would. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. What do you have to believe to be a follower of Christ? Christ and Christ crucified. What do you have to to believe to be justified before the Father? Christ and Christ crucified. Again, nothing more to it, but there's so much more in it. What is in it? Well, to believe that, to believe that he had to come to die would mean that there's a need, and the need is our sin nature. And it's in our brokenness and in our sinfulness that he came in grace and love and atones for our sin. That's that justification. The propitiation and the expiation. We, we talked about that. Go back and read that. So remember the two things that Abraham believed. We will go back to, to where we just started today. He believed in a God who gives life to the dead. Now, when we, when we read that in Abraham's mind, more than likely it is him being 99, Sarah being 98, and them trying to sort out how in the world are they going to have a kid? And this isn't a metaphorical kid. This is a real, live, crying kid. God is going to breathe life into death and make it rise. So for this, when we see New Testament, we see the picture of Resurrection. That God in his grace raises his son from the dead and in that defeating hell, death, and the grave and invites us into his family forever. God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's a fun word to know, ex nihilo. And it is this statement that it, that it describes that out of nothing comes Something. Even though we were dead in our sin, God breathed life into us and made us not just neutral, but made us His. God made nothing from something. So so for us, as we we look to this text, I, I, I want us to hear this as our worship team comes back up and we move into a time of response. This Christian faith as Paul is writing to, to a concerned church in the first century, and they're trying to sort out what's going to happen. Do the Gentiles need to be more Jewish? Do the Jews need to be more Gentile? And, and what Paul would say is, you need to be more Christ-like. Both of you, you need to follow Christ. This Christian faith is not about us, it's about Christ. And this is the tension that we must constantly wrestle with. Everything about our life and where we live is constantly telling us that we are the center, that we matter most, that everything revolves around us, but the terrible problem with the world that we live in is we are never enough for it. The center is too much for us. We don't matter the most, and everything does not revolve around us. And against that backdrop of bleak truth, Comes the gospel. We are offered the opportunity to trust our life to someone better. Someone who, in all the ways that we have failed, is perfect. Someone who, in all the ways that we are not enough, is complete. If God, in His grace, has awakened your dead heart to realize your desperate need for Him in faith, trust Him. Give your life to him. Believe this gospel and be saved. That is is the hope that we have today. There is not a call. You will not read it in here. That if you are lost, all you have to do is try harder or do more. The call is to come and to believe. Believe in God who sent his son. That his son came and made an atonement for us. Made us right with the father. That is how you are saved. You believe him. And his good and gracious work. But no doubt, if you are like me and many of you are, we still have a lot of unbelief in us. So I look through the scriptures and I think, where can I find Jesus speak about these things? Where where, where can I find other examples of this? Is is this a one-off on Paul or is this kind of a a theme throughout? But he's he's covered it pretty good. He he goes to Genesis and and we talk about it in Romans and it's a lot in Hebrews and many of his other letters. But when it comes to this idea of unbelief and God still being good in our unbelief, And our unbelief that our faith's not wavering. Mark chapter 9 is where I typically go. I want want you to turn there because if you don't know where this passage is, I think it would be really beneficial for you to have it marked, at least have it highlighted. Mark chapter 9. I'll set it up while you're turning. We're going to pick up in verse 21. But the setup is this. Jesus walks up on a crowd there's evidently a lively discussion going on. So he walks up to his disciples. And evidently, this man had brought his son to Jesus' disciples. And this, this man's son has had an evil spirit. and had it for his whole life. And he brought it to the disciples to, for them to cast out this, this evil spirit, but they couldn't. So Jesus asked the Father to bring the son to him. And when the son sees Jesus... When really the spirit, the evil spirit inside the son sees Jesus, it says it throws the boy down and he starts to convulse, rolling around, foaming at the mouth. Imagine that scene. Verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, this is the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Listen. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. All right. Just, I know a lot of times we'll read scripture and we just go to the next verse. Dads, soak in this moment for a second. Your son has been tormented his whole life. And as a dad, I can't imagine what what he is feeling here because the thing that we want more than anything else for our kids is to help them. And when they have something inside of them that we can't help, it is the most helpless feeling a parent can have. And so he brings his son to the people that he thinks can help and they can't. Jesus shows up and Jesus asks for the boy and the boy starts to walk towards him. And as soon as the spirit sees him, he throws the boy down and starts to roll and convulse and to start to uh, foam at the mouth. And, And in the dad's mind, hear me out. This is the guy who's supposed to fix it. He's getting worse. Then he says this to Jesus, if you can. He must have not followed Jesus too much. If you can. Jesus' response, if you can. And then he makes this statement. All things are possible for those who believe. What do you think your response would be? Here's what the dad's response was. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. How many of us have been there where we have come to the Father full of unbelief? And our cry isn't, no, I'm, I'm not unbelieving. I believe. We're honest. I know I don't believe like I should. But Father, help my unbelief. Jesus at that moment goes to heal the man's son. God is good, church. We are not. Trust in Him, not in yourself. Surrender everything that you are to Him today. Too often we believe that this faith is about us. That the strength of our faith in God is dependent on what we feel. Can I give you some freedom this morning? Your faith isn't dependent on your feeling. Your faith is dependent on the God who loves you and holds you. I'm gonna give you a silly illustration that I learned when I was 13 at Gulf Shore Baptist Assembly. Just a show of hands, who's ever been to God's holy land? Amen, yes, I knew I loved y'all. I remember my Bible teacher at 13 teaching us this about how God holds us. And he said, too often we believe that we are the one, if this is God, we are the one holding on to God. And there are days where we are strong and we feel like our relationship is good and right. But then the things of the world start to sink in And we start to think, oh no, my faith is wavering It is going to slip and fall But what we forget Is that our faith never had anything to do with our hand in the first place That God always had us And no matter if we are here or here God is always here He's always got you I'm not trying to teach a universalist theology this morning. Listen to me. I believe with all that I am that God awakens our dead heart, shows us our desperate need of salvation, brings us under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. And it's not in that conviction that we should say, oh no, I'm being found out. Let me go try harder or do more. It's in that moment that we repent of our sin and we believe him for who he is. And it's in that belief that we are set free. That's what the apostle Paul wanted the first century church to know. That's what God wants us to know today. That if you believe And God the Father, who loves you enough, who sent his Son, that whoever would believe in that Son would not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what we believe. That is what we tell. And that is what we live. Church, would you pray with me as we move into this invitation time? Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for your your scripture. I pray, Father, that in my brokenness that it was made clear today. Thank you for holding us even when we feel like we are falling away. Thank you for the story, the account of Abraham, the account of David, the account of Christ, all the disciples. Thank you for all those who have gone before us, who have shown us what it is to believe in you. So we ask today, Father, that you would strengthen our hearts in the midst of our unbelief. God, allow it, our unbelief and our ability. We can't do it. We're not enough. We fail all the time. Let that unbelief draw us, Father, to belief in you to faith in you, rock solid belief that you, God, are the one who sustains us and holds us no matter what. So we ask now in this invitation, Holy Spirit, that you would move across this room. And God, you would move our hearts to praise, you would move our hearts to brokenness, whatever we need, we want. Whatever you deem necessary for us, we want all of it. Whatever is in our life right now that isn't necessary, that you don't want for us to have, God, we ask that you would remove it. Anything that blinds us from seeing the truth of who you are and the promises that you have made, remove those things from our eyes, we pray. Help us in this invitation time respond rightly to you. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. And we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?